Art is too important not to share. Welcome to the Allie and Callie Artcast. Hi, I'm Allie. And I'm Callie, and we're with the Coeur d'Alene Arts and Culture Alliance. Hello, everyone. Hello, we are back. Yes. And I am so excited, Callie. I'm, me too. I am so excited because our friends from Ireland, we chatted with them the other day, and we have completely planned, planned, planned trip? our Portugal trip. I am and so excited. And we have these fabulous places that we're staying in Portugal, and it's pretty inexpensive. I know. For all four of us... For the two solid weeks we are there, $3,000. That's amazing. For all four of us. And did you get a big suitcase? No, I'm taking a because little suitcase. Because I'm going to get in your suitcase. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I could fit. You probably could, but I could that fit. would be a miserable it trip. It would be a horrible trip. <laughs> I would be like dead dead at the plane. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be awesome, though. But yeah, well, but you're going to have so, so much excited. Fun. We're going um, to, we're flying into Porto, mm-hmm. and then we're taking the train along the Douro Valley. We're going to do the old steam train. So fun. In... I think the name of the town is Rivara. No, that's the name that's of the winery. That's the winery in Coeur no, But it's something awesome. like that. Um, <laughs> there's this old steam train that takes you through the wine country. So cool. And then we're going to do a boat wine tour where Fun. they do wine pairings and we stop at several wineries. Nice. Then we, then we take the train back. And go to Coimbra, mm-hmm. and we'll stay a couple, two nights, I think, in Coimbra. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to go to Lisbon, but we're going to get a car when we get to Lisbon. And we're going to drive to Obidos mm-hmm. and um, <coughs> another little town that I am forgetting, and mm-hmm. we're going to spend three or four days there. Nice. Then we travel down to a little town outside of Faro, which is at the very bottom of Portugal. And it's a name that begins with a Q. Okay. Just the Q town. Uh, the Q town. <laughs> Look <laughs> but, it up, people. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember Karen Cotton. She lived here for a long time. She and her husband, Jack, had muffins and cream mm. in down on Sherman okay. a long, long time ago. This was back in the, in the late 70s, early yeah. 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, she and her husband Jack moved to Portugal, and they live in a little town called Old How or Old Jao. It's O L H O A. Okay. And it's just outside of Faro, and we're, I'm hoping that we'll get a chance to have meet up a glass, with them. Meet up with them. That would with, be so yeah, fun. And have a glass of wine. Or oh, I can't wait. Whatever. I'm anyway, excited for your trip. It's just so exciting to have a plan. It is. It's good to have the plan. <laughs> it exactly. is. It is. I agree. Well, yep. and I'm just busy, busy, busy with singing in the rain, so and don't forget. And celebrating a birthday. Oh, yes. I did turn 60, and it feels good. Yeah. You know, I'm happy. And you look good. Thank you. I we feel good. We went out to lunch today, and the, and the gal said, Nuh-uh, you're not 60. Nuh-uh. She said it like that. Yeah. Nuh-uh. Nuh-uh. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, huh? I am. 1963. Uh, yeah. Right. Anyway, so anyway. Yeah, it's been it's been a great, great couple of days celebrating my birthday. And um, yeah, just working hard, getting Singing in the Rain ready. And uh, yep. Riverstone concerts are happening. We're yep. just, it's, it's a beautiful summer. I mean, we look out, we record this at the chamber and the lake is shimmering oh there's a what do you call that sky parasail up there oh my god i would never do that but it looks great for them right parasailer we're just we have to enjoy these moments and look at where we live and it's exactly pretty beautiful it's pretty beautiful and some people come here to go it's so beautiful i'm like yeah yeah but sometimes it's fun to go to portugal Right. Sometimes it's fun to go other places and stay. (laughs) And sometimes it's really (laughs) fun to hear stories about all the places you've been and the things that you've done. Yes. And that's why we have Marlo Faulkner back with us today because we cannot get enough of her stories. That's right. She had so many (laughs) stories. We couldn't, we couldn't stop. We were like, we need more, more Marlo. And we never even got to talk about 
how you start. Hello, Marlo, first of all. Happy birthday, Kelly. Oh, thank you, Marlo. <laughs> thank you so much. I feel lucky that you blessed me with a happy birthday. Yay. Um, I was still in college when you were born. Okay. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's all right. You were instrumental in bringing the arts and culture to Coeur d'Alene. So right. why don't you tell us a little bit about how the Coeur d'Alene Arts and Culture Alliance began? Yes. It was very simple. It had to do with money. <laughs> money yeah. is uh, the root of all I art. Had been, <laughs> well, I had been on the board of Summer Theater. Mm-hmm. And Jim, who was the president of the board for a millennium. Yes. Oh, yeah, Jim. Uh, Jim, I, I know. Spears? Spears. Spears. Jim Spears, mm-hmm. who oh, was that. chairman of the board for 26 years. Yes. Uh, had done a study on how much money was brought into Coeur d'Alene throughout the year by performing arts. Mm-hmm. And it was horrific, mm-hmm. the, the number. I mean, it was in the millions. Yeah. yeah. And I think, and, and this was 20-some years ago. Yeah. It was $4 million then. Mm-hmm. And that was before the symphony expanded, before mm-hmm. the opera was established. It was amazing. Well, I thought, I had been involved uh, sort of peripherally with the chamber. Jonathan Coe was president mm-hmm. then. And I kept saying to, to Jonathan, how do, how do we get some of that money? And he said, what money? And I said, the 400 and some thousand dollars that the Idaho uh, Department of Commerce gives to every town. Uh, every year to advertise their town. Mm-hmm. And Coeur d'Alene that year had gotten something like $460,000. And I thought, whoa, Nellie, yeah. I want some of that. <laughs> right. So I volunteered to be on that executive committee for promotion. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'll only do it if I can be there as a representative of the performing arts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they said, Okay, but they thought that was a little weird. So I <laughs> would go to these meetings and they'd say, well, so-and-so's getting this money and we're putting this kind of money on billboards. And I said, what about the performing arts? And they'd look at me and say, what do you mean, what about the performing arts? I said, well, we bring in $4 million a year and we need help in promoting mm-hmm. summer theater, the symphony, all of these mm-hmm. things are happening. And, and so... They sort of kept looking at me, sort of like, is she going to go away? No. (laughs) So Steve Gibbs and I were good friends, Mm -hmm. and Steve had started the Art Spirit Gallery. Mm -hmm. And Steve and I were talking about this one day when I stopped in to visit, and I said, I don't see why the arts can't have this money. So Steve and I went to see Jonathan. And we said, okay, Jonathan, without going to this committee thing, how do we get some of that money? And he said, well, you have to form an organization that is a part of the Chamber of Commerce Mm. because the money goes through the chamber. Right. So we said, how do we do that? And he said, well, you have to get at least 20 new chamber members. And I thought, huh? Yeah. He said, if you get 20 new chamber members, then you can qualify for being a separate committee in the chamber. Oh, interesting. Wait, did those members have to be part of the arts? No, they just have to be 20 new members. Oh, Oh, wow. So we said, heck, we can do that. Right. (laughs) So uh, Steve was going to take the visual arts. Because mm-hmm. he had the, the, gal- the gallery. The gallery. Sure. And I said, I'll take the performing arts. Mm-hmm. So I sort of went trotting around to everybody who was performing, whether they were individuals or whether they were groups or whether they were theater, whether they were just straight music, whatever mm-hmm. they were. Mm-hmm. And Steve went to all the, the uh, galleries and studios and independent artists, and we came up with 30-some members. And most of them were were perf- either performers or or, or uh, visual artists. Mm-hmm. So we came to Jonathan, and he said, oh, okay, so what are you going to call yourselves? <laughs> so <laughs> the name we came up with was the Coeur d'Alene Arts and Cultural Alliance, which 
if you take those four letters, uh, says caca. Caca. And we didn't, <laughs> we didn't think that was going to work <laughs> because people were going to make fun of us. Uh-huh. And it was hard enough to convince businesses that we were serious and that we were an important part of the mm-hmm. business community. Yeah, it would be hard to go to some business and say, will you support caca? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we came up with the Arts and Cultural Alliance. Mm-hmm. And then it was a question of who's going to be president. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve said, no way, Jose. Yeah. He was very much not a I'm out there guy. Right. Yeah. And I said, I've done this too many times. We need some, to bring in somebody who is neutral. Right. So when I first came home to Coeur d'Alene from living uh, in California and, and Florida, uh, Ray Stone called me. Ray Stone! Oh, yeah. my God, I haven't heard that name in forever. Ray Stone called me. I was home, and uh, he said one of the English teachers from NIC had had a heart attack while on sabbatical oh. and was not coming back, and could I fill in for her? Mm. Oh, wow. Well, I was dating this really cool guy in Seattle, and he had a plane, so I said, sure. <laughs> and so I taught at NIC, taught English. And I was the night librarian. And at the time, students were not allowed to check out Grey's Anatomy without permission. Wow. It was a different time. <laughs> oh and so anyway, I would... <laughs> so crazy. Shake your head. I just... I just okay. So anyway, I taught at NIC. And, and the other unmarried human female at NIC was Virginia Tinsley. Mm. Oh, Virginia. And I had been sort of dating a guy named Graydon Johnson that summer who was teaching me to sail. And then Graydon met Virginia, and they were married 60 years, I think. Yeah. Mm. They, and Graydon yeah. sadly just passed away. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, Parkinson's. It was mm. not a way to die. Mm-hmm. And so Virginia, who most people know as Virginia Johnson, then yeah. was Virginia Tinsley. Mm-hmm. In fact, she's the one who went with me to the Wilma Theater that night, and we stopped at the athletic round table, and that was when I decided to leave home. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that uh, great story. Yeah. At any rate, well, I like, called Virginia and told her what we were doing. She said, oh, sure, I can do that. Oh, yay, Virginia. Because she was head of the humanities department at NIC, mm. and she mm-hmm. was a natural, to, I mean, good administrator, knows how to run a meeting, all that stuff. Right. Up. So she was the first. She was the first president. Okay. Oh, and then we got a representative from every gallery and every That's great. Uh, performing arts organization mm-hmm. to come. And uh, it was working just fine. In fact, it was working so well that Jonathan said, you need to become an independent organization. Mm-hmm. And we were able to buy somebody's whatever uh, with the state you, where you you file, you incorporate. Yes. And there was, some, there was one floating out there that somebody decided not to use anymore. So we co-opted that and we became a an accredited organization under the state of Idaho. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. So that's why you guys are what yeah. you are now. Right, right. And, and so then you went on to get your 501c3. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then we could be a nonprofit. We, it would, I mean, we needed that. So all of a sudden we were a business, a nonprofit mm-hmm. business, a, a, a viable, real nonprofit business in Coeur d'Alene. Mm-hmm. Right. And all of a sudden we had 102 members. Wow. Businesses started great. joining. But, you know, the thing that really turned it around was we started going. I, I did this a lot because I had such a good time doing it. I would go to the Upbeat Breakfast and Marilee Wallace would come around and oh, say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, she had the basket and you put a, you know, everybody puts a card in and then mm-hmm. you pull a thing and I'd pull something for summer theater, for opera, mm-hmm. for whatever. And uh, all of a sudden people were aware that there was a lot going on and I'd have all the posters and all the books and all that sort of thing. And then Steve, we got Jonathan to have an arts upbeat breakfast. Oh, fun. Yes. Steve was the speaker. Uh Right. And he brought some George Carlson art and he started talking about the art spirit. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden people were cognizant that we weren't just a bunch of old hippies out there, you know, <laughs> right. 
flowing through our nose. And, yeah. And, and we became a real thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, real people started getting involved and businesses started getting involved. And there were sponsors showing up. And mm-hmm. there were events that sort of grew like mold, you know. They they were a little spot and then all of a sudden they were everywhere. I shouldn't have used the word mold. That I know. Negative. But anyway. <laughs> and that's how it grew. Mold yeah. can be good too. Yeah. That's how it, and, and I've always been one of those people who likes to be part of a genesis or get a project started Mm -hmm. and then when it's going I'm gone I don't need to be there anymore Mm -hmm. new people come in new ideas new energies Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. so that's what happened yeah yeah, and, and here that, we are. And that honestly, how many years later, Ali? How many years? Well, uh, that was 2005 is when it was formed. 2006 is when we got our 501c3, mm-hmm. and now we're almost 20 years later. Yeah, yep. here we are. Yeah. And nobody thought, it's like when we started uh, the opera company and people said, opera in Coeur d'Alene? I don't huh. think so. Right, yeah. yeah. And when we put this together, people said, oh, nobody's going to be interested in that. Mm-hmm. But once we became a viable, uh, respected or organization mm-hmm. with the Chamber of Commerce, and the Chamber really is what gave us the foundation, mm-hmm. and right. Jonathan was so supportive, mm-hmm. Uh it, it just sort of took off because uh, we could show figures to the executive committee as to how much money we brought in. So we started getting some of the arts and culture started getting some of that money from the state. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And, and, when, and when the Arts and Culture Alliance started, wasn't it primarily focused on, like, Art Walk? That was the big... That was the first thing. The mm-hmm. first thing. That was the first thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody had ever art walk was that yeah yeah you know and then there was music and then there was people over in the plaza painting and right, right. it's sort of like topsy grew yeah mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. now i and now i mean it's it's kind of morphed again it's it's mm-hmm. uh we're still doing art walk mm-hmm. we're trying to do the art in the making which is the artist yep. working um and then you've got riverstone you've yeah got riverstone, riverstone concerts music for the wise which virginia was actually really instrumental in getting started. And she's always been very supportive. Yeah. yeah. Oh, she has. And that's a great program for yeah. the, the elderly community and the assisted living that we we support and bring in musicians, and they get to play for f- 45 minutes to right. maybe an hour. Particularly in the winter months. When yeah, the, when, it's, when you they, can't get out. It's really difficult yeah. to get out. Cause it, it's such a great program. Yeah. I mean, it's scary for me to go out in the winter. <laughs> but Coeur d'Alene has really a, an astounding number of artists both performing mm-hmm. on a national level and yes. visual on a national level. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at George Carlson. Yeah. Uh, considered probably the finest Western landscape artist alive and mm-hmm. is the only artist to ever have, a living artist had to have a full retrospective at the Denver Art Museum. Mm-hmm. And his work is in every major museum in the United right. States. And yeah. Yeah. There's a new book out of a ret- of retrospective of his work. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, and Ellen Travolta is here mm-hmm. and sure, and she's just going gangbusters with these new Hallmark movies. Yeah, she she's is. big on those movies. So she loves them. And yeah. you know, and and my brain's going to go dead. But but you know who all these people are. Mm-hmm. And and the nice thing is that they contribute to the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't Giving just back. live in a big house and say, you know, up yours. They're <laughs> right. really nice people. Yeah. Right. Giving oh, it back. for sure. Yeah. So we've talked about the Coeur d'Alene Arts and Culture Alliance. So, well, let's, tell us let's, a little bit. want some more stories. Let's dive well, back. When I was growing up. Let's hear about you, Marlo. The biggest <laughs> performing arts thing that happened in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, was Horace Height. Horace Height? Who's Hor- that? Horace Height was a uh, probably he was a contemporary of Arthur Godfrey. Oh. Only he was on the road. Oh. It was Horace Height and his band of renown. <laughs> and he traveled around the United States, and he came to Coeur d'Alene every year. Okay. Wow. Spring. And it was really big time. I mean, they had a girl singer, oh. and sometimes they would let uh, uh, amateurs, you know, join the band. And it was always at the old NIC gym. 
<laughs> and they'd pull out all of the bleachers. And I mean, it was the biggest thing that ever happened as far as I was concerned, besides wow. the ice capades, which came oh. every year at Christmas. Right. The first year I ever saw the ice capades in Spokane, it was in a tent at the fairgrounds. Oh, and wow. And we sat on benches and on straw. Oh, my goodness. Uh, until wow. they opened the Coliseum. I mean, that that was where they performed. And uh, I met some of those people, and they loved coming to Spokane so much during Christmas that, that they still come at Christmas Aww. because that's the Ice Capades Christmas yeah. tradition. Mm-hmm. But wow. uh, we w- did the Ice Capades. We did Horace Height. And, and what it, and Horace Height, it was like a big concert. Like, like a, a vaudeville no, or no, like they, a little variety well, I show? I thought they were big, but it was... No, no, they were... Uh, an orchestra, and oh. they played Great American Songbook. Oh, which I, I love that. I didn't know that term at the time. I right. love that. You know, I do I now. And most people who like music, you know, if you love Ella Fitzgerald, <sighs> love Louis Armstrong, that so much, and that's what you were listening yeah. to. And so, for for a lot of people in Coeur d'Alene, it was nostalgic because it was sure. not long after the war. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking early fifties, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and. Uh, you know, and then then I got involved with Bluebirds, and then Campfire, and we all also went back to NIC to do our Campfire things, and then mm-hmm. uh, when I, I was, was a Bluebird, were you? Oh, I, I loved Bluebirds. <laughs> I was uh, a Girl Scout. Sorry. No, we won't talk to you. <laughs> And then Campfire, and uh, there was a woman named Wasil Rhodes who sort of took care of organizing Campfire, and the, the superintendent of schools was Geo Fippany. It was so funny. I thought, why would anybody name their kid Geo? I still don't know what his first name is. That's funny. Probably George Oliver. Probably, or Georgia or something. But his Uh. wife was very involved in Campfire. Uh And the head of the Forest Service here was a man named Jim Evenden, who was a neighbor of ours. And his wife, who was a beautiful, beautiful woman, uh, was also involved. And she... Uh, and Mrs. Fippany did all the scut work for Campfire. And when you were in Campfire, there were different levels that you had progressed through. Mm-hmm. And I can remember the fire bearers poem that we had to memorize. It was, as faggots are brought to the fire, firmly held by the sinews which bind them, I will cleave to my campfire sisters wherever, whenever I find them. I will strive to grow trong- strong like the pine tree, to be pure in my deepest desires, to be true to the truth that is in me, and follow the law of campfire. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's great. Wow, Talk that's about, amazing. Well, I, I can do most of them. And then we had these clothes these gowns they were called ceremonial gowns Mm -hmm. and they looked like some whack doodle version of Sacagawea (laughs) and then when you started the uh, going through the levels of of camp of of campfire Uh you you got a big piece of leather it was deerskin tanned deerskin and then you got to design it to look however you wanted and it fit over the top of this thing and then as you did special things like Girl Scouts got badges yeah, we, we got, got beads bags. right oh. and then you put the beads on the hoo-hoo <laughs> and then we did uh, one of the things for one of the levels was we learned to do bead weaving and we did headbands oh yeah and then we did pillows for for ceremonies mm-hmm. called a sit-upon and we each had to have a name so I made up an Indian name <laughs> and I because we're packing up things I found my sit-upon last week you did not I did I love it um, That's awesome. <laughs> but you know campfire was really important to me mm-hmm. uh it it really helped forge who i am mm-hmm. because it taught me that when you are in a community that you participate yeah that it's wrong to be in a community and not participate and when you participate you try to do things that make it a better place than you found it that's I great that. that's and great that's what, advice people hey y'all It's Jason from Tubbs Coffee Roasters. We are North Idaho's specialty coffee roaster. We are homegrown and we are local. We love coffee and we love our community, especially Allie and Callie in ArtCast. 
We have a retail space in our roastery in Hayden, and we can also be found on the shelves at Super One and Yolks. And if you like to buy coffee online, we do offer subscriptions. You can find us at tubscoffeeroasters.com. Support arts and culture and your local roaster. That's all. I remember even just moving back to Coeur d'Alene in the late 90s, there was this thing here where people had on the backs of their cars, and whether it was a station wagon or an SUV or a regular car, it would say, our family. And then above it were these little stick figures. Yes. And it was the yeah. daddy and the mommy and mm-hmm, then the kids, right. you know, all the way down. And then the dog and the cat and maybe yeah. even the fish. And they were really cute, right? Mm-hmm. And that was this community. Right. It was family. If right. somebody had a tragedy in their family, people came out of the woodwork to help them solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. If somebody were sick and they needed treatment, people sent thousands of dollars to pay for this treatment. Mm-hmm. If somebody, you know, had a, a whatever, their house mm-hmm. burned down, whatever it was, this is the most incredible giving community I've ever seen. I agree. Mm-hmm. It's been wonderful. I had a memory that I wanted Oh yeah, tell us to your tell memory. you. When we were kids and we had all these kids in our neighborhood in the foregrounds who were all around the same age. Right. And in the alley behind Park Drive, between Park Drive and Military, mm-hmm. there were a lot of fruit trees. <laughs> And what kind of fruit trees? Well, Bobby Shine and I used to climb up on our roof and, and take all the, the big cherries before my mother <laughs> could get to them. She, it, it always infuriated her. <laughs> but there was a, uh, an apple tree, I believe, behind the Hamlet's house. Mm-hmm. And there was one behind the Shelton's house. And there was one down at Grandpa Fender's house. And a lot of kids lived on the other side which was then we called the alley and then the city appropriated six six feet from our house and the the Shelton's house and the other two houses and call, now they call it Sh- Sherman Court it's very Tony oh well <laughs> but La-ti-da. then it then it was the alley and it right. was dirt uh-huh. and when the apples were ripe we used to go pick the the free falls which were possibly half rotted yeah right (laughs) and then you go around and you steal as many garbage can lids as possible and then we'd have an (laughs) apple fight and your protection was the garbage can Uh so it was like a snowball fight it was like a snowball fight it was snowball snowball fight with rotten apples yeah Good, clean fun. Yeah. But really, was it clean? I don't know. <laughs> we had such a good time. The, but that's the, fun. The what worst great? part of it was that I keep bringing up Bobby Shineye because he was really wicked. His, <laughs> his dad had hunting dogs and Bob had to feed them. Uh-huh. So he used to get Donna Hamlet, myself, Susan Shelton, all the younger females down their basement and then he'd have a contest to see who could feed the dogs the fastest (laughs) and then he'd dare us to eat the kibble oh my god (laughs) and we fell for it because okay he was sort of this charismatic you're like blonde kid (laughs) and uh, i remember going to his uh I believe it was his 60th birthday party, and for a present, I gave him five pounds of kibble. (laughs) And he didn't remember why it was even funny. (laughs) Here's your kibble. Take your kibble. Oh, anyway. That's funny. Oh, my gosh. And we all went across the alley to uh, Charlie Finch's house, where Georgia and Bruce and his sister can't remember her name they but they lived right across the alley the other alley the main alley it went between the two streets mm-hmm. and uh mrs finch a lovely woman was a pianist and she taught every kid in the neighborhood how to play the piano mm-hmm. i mean that wow. was really fun and across military there was this huge block of uh property that had been the last part of the fort to be developed mm. it was where mr curl lived where the uh his house charlie finch bought that in 52 and then he developed it into the two uh, uh apartments and summer rentals mm-hmm. and there was nothing there mm-hmm. except a barn and lakeshore lodge is what he called it and in the winter all the men 
in the fort grounds and their friends would bring their horses down and uh, put their horses on that property for one thing it was all full of grass right and they put a hobble and a stake you know and so the horses were out and went so when they went hunting it was easy to load them onto the carts and go off hunting and Georgia Finch used to keep her horses there and mm-hmm. she had horses more than one mm-hmm. so she would let us ride them and i remember one day we rode our horses out to the bums jungle well that was scary yeah now the bums jungle was all those trees many of which are still there mm-hmm. where you drive through them to go to the osprey oh right and the property that's going to be the new uh and uh, classroom center if they ever get it built mm. but we rode our her horses out there and the thing was if you saw a bum you had to run and touch the bum get back on the horse get out of there <laughs> and oh that was the rules and I'll tell you I never got off that horse right, yeah, like, <laughs> I did it you didn't see me I was so fast but we and we used to do that in the park because oh. they they uh, planted in the late 40s they planted um uh, blue spruce in the park along mm. Park Drive. And they're beautiful trees. They're kind of trees people buy for Christmas trees and then right. they plant them and they think, oh, this is going to be cute. Well, cute's 60 feet tall. Yeah, now it's very right. fast. Right. So the bums used to sleep under those trees in the summer. Mm. So the thing was, you had to creep across Park Drive and touch the bum and get home before the bum could wake up enough to find out which way you went. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and finally, uh, uh, Doug Eastwood uh, had a brilliant idea and he cut the trees up three feet above the grass so oh, nobody oh, could sleep. So you couldn't sleep can't hide it, that any, makes anymore. Sense. Can't hide can't hide anymore. Oh, oh no, that's funny. You can run but you can't hide. Wow. <laughs> it was uh you know, speaking of Doug Eastwood, I I heard him give a little talk and on the history of creating the Centennial Trail recently. Oh, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. How, how many people use it? I can see it from my house. Well, mm-hmm. it's a miracle yeah. that it happened yes. that they got the the rail the railroad. They'd, they'd never to, get it now. I know it. it yeah. But yeah, you see, I, when I was a kid, the railroad was still running, including the passenger cars. Uh, and when they killed the wow. passenger service to Spokane, my dad bought a whole car. <gasps> and every kid in the neighborhood got on the car. Uh, and we rode to Spokane and back. And wow. we thought it was going to be so much fun. Well, it was hot like now. <laughs> and they used horsehair upholstery in those cars. Ooh. And we all had shorts on. You're like, and ah, we were miserable. Scratchy, we, had, huh? we all stood up the entire trip so we wouldn't get rash from the horrible upholstery. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I can't believe yeah, you it. Oh. It was really uh, a super di- different time. Yeah, you know, there was still a railroad tunnel under what is now the parking lot across from the Hall of Justice. Really, mm. right by what used to be uh, the Hawkins House, but is now the conservatory. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I can't prove this, but I heard that people like Jim Hawkins and Bill Drake and others of that ilk used to stand at the top of that tunnel and jump on the cars and the thing was did you have enough courage to lay flat oh and god. go through to the other side oh of my the god. tunnel when you jump off again so um, oh <laughs> I never saw that but I heard about it Oh wow! Funny. and I also heard a story that I'm not going to attribute to anyone <laughs> But I have mentioned them in the past, Mm -hmm. that one time in the summer, some people who had graduated from Coeur d'Alene High School in the mid-50s went to one of their father's closets and got a full set of clothes, a suit, underwear, undershirt, tie, shoes, socks, the whole schmear. And there used to be this big dock down right where Independence Point is. Mm -hmm. And there was another big dock with a huge slide on it. And it was always, all the young kids in the neighborhood, we aspired to be able to swim well enough to go out to that slide. Mm. And the thing was, we thought we could go out on the big dock dive and dive in it and we could get there without drowning. Uh So these guys went down one night and put 
carefully folded all these clothes on the end of the dock and left a suicide note. Oh, oh my no. God. <laughs> and they never did find the body. <laughs> but just on the other side of that dock, Louise. I was showing off one time when I thought I was smarter than I was, and which is a lot of the time. And my dad had the the boat works at the end of Third Street, which was where he kept the Dansawana and the Siwiwana and all that. And he had an office and a, and a workshop down there. And he had uh, a dealership in aluminum boats. I think they were called Alumacraft. And he had this little 12-foot runabout, and it had a four-and-a-half horsepower engine on it. It was a Johnson. And it was an old Johnson, but they'd been fixed up in the shop. And it was one of those that you wrap the, the cord around with the knot in the notch, and then you whack oh. pull as hard as you can, and oh hopefully the engine's going to start. Yeah, right. So I was bragging to my friends that I could take a boat out all by myself. <laughs> so we all went down to Third Street, got in this little thing, and we'd go putting out. And we got just about to the end of where that dock would be, and the... <laughs> The thing fell right off the boat because I'd forgotten to tighten the wing nut. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. And, of course, we didn't have any oars. Yeah, you're oh like, boy. Whoops. So we got in the water and held on to the transom and kicked it back to third grade. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, the thing's... Uh, trouble. I, yeah. I, you I are to trouble. Go, well, I used to go out, out on that... Um, the trestle where they used to dump the logs it was uh-huh. right, yeah. which is where the uh, boat uh, where you bring your boat in and, mm-hmm. and launch your boat yeah and uh, there was a big trestle there and there was this really cool guy named Kirk White who used to fish off of there and his dad used to work for my dad occasionally so I knew who he was and I thought it was very exciting to walk out on the trestle and fish with Kirk White and I had all these fantasies. He was older. I was, what, 13? Right. <laughs> and I had these fantasies I was like 13-year-old girls do. And he was really cool. And he was really nice to me. And then he moved away. And lo and behold, when I was pregnant with my first child, who was born in 1974, I went to La Lecha League meetings. And the woman who was sitting next to me when we introduced ourselves, she said, my name is Mrs. Kirk White. <laughs> and it was during that time when women introduced themselves. Right. As Mrs. Mrs. As Mrs. So-and-so. Mrs. Husband. Mrs. I'm the wife of somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and that was tough because, you know, so many women went to work during the war and mm-hmm. they worked hard and yeah. they established themselves and they had independence and respect. And all of a sudden the war's over. All those guys come home. They get their jobs because it was a federal law. Right. And the women have to go back. Go and back all of home. a sudden they become... Second class again. Well, they become servants in their own home. Yeah. Right. And they're Mrs. (laughs) So-and-so. My mother always introduced herself as Mrs. John Finney. Right. I said, Mom. So anyway, (laughs) she introduced herself as Mrs. Kirk White. And I, I looked at her and I said, oh, my God. And I described Kirk White. She said, that's my husband. How do you know my husband? (laughs) (laughs) And here we were, you know, 1,800 miles away. That's fun. And and a meeting just happened to... And he had gone on and done very well for himself. I no, feel like you have had a lot of encounters with, with r- people that you unexpectedly... New. Well, I think you have to put yourself out in the world, mm-hmm. and you have to embrace what's happening around you, and you have to be willing to take a chance mm-hmm. and to... Uh, I've always been a gambler. I used to... When I was in Florida, I used to love to go to the track, to go down uh, to Miami to the racetrack, and the thing was, I get my girlfriends and we get all dressed up in our best dresses. And <laughs> we didn't have a lot of dresses then, but we right. we get all dressed up with heels and the whole thing. And we go to where the touts were when they were walking the horses before the race. Mm-hmm. And we sort of flirt with the touts and they tell us who to bet on. Oh, fun. And we yeah. sometimes would make enough money to pay our rent. <laughs> and I, I was such a sucker, I always bet on the gray. And I remember betting $20 to win on a gray named George Raft. I mean, how could you resist? <laughs> I don't think, he's still walking around somewhere in greater Miami looking for the finish line. <laughs> he, was, he was so slow. <laughs> Dang it. Dang but I, it. But I do think you, that... Uh, 
I remember getting on a plane in Carbondale, Illinois, one time to fly to Chicago to come home for Christmas, and this man came and sat next to me, and I, you know, I, because I'm my father's daughter, and my dad was loquacious to a painful degree, <laughs> and I, you know, I said, you know, where are you going? Blah blah blah. It turned out he'd lived in Coeur d'Alene during, during Farragut, and he knew my parents. So oh. crazy. But so. things like that have happened to me my whole life because I've always talked to people. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah. You're open to it. And it lets just... It's like the guy at the bar in Fort Lauderdale who said, well, I have a plane. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. I know. It's, I love uh, that story. It's a great one. It's, uh, uh, I've encouraged my children to be... Op- and my son gets such a kick out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, when he was uh, in Iraq, he got to be friends with the guy... The Iraqi, his equivalent, they were both captains at the time, and, and uh, uh, they got to talking. It turns out they were both had a gr- degrees in architecture, Kite mm. from the University of Idaho, and the other guy from some university there in Turkey or wherever. And the, the guy, the other guy, uh, had grown up in Damascus, and so when they got a leave, they went to Damascus and pitched a pup tent in one of Saddam Hussein's gardens and spent uh, four days looking at architecture. Wow. And, and and I said, he called me because we used to send him phone cards and he, he called and he said, I said, well, well, where are you staying? He said, well, we have a pup tent in one of Saddam Hussein's gardens. I said, isn't that where those guys, the Taliban's out there with the bazookas? Mm. And he said, yeah, but you know, mom, fate is fate. You, if you don't go out and take advantage of where you are and and live for the moment, he said, nobody's going to hit a pup tent in one of Saddam Hussein's gardens. And as it turned out, they didn't. Wow. 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 But I think there aren't a lot of people who feel comfortable stepping out of their own shadow. Right. Right. And I always have because my dad did and... and he taught me how to talk to people. I remember talking to a man on the Dance of Wana once on the river cruise, and and I've always been sort of a World War II person. I've read I read everything in the Coeur d'Alene Library that had anything to do with World War II, both mm-hmm. fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And I knew a lot about the North African campaign. Mm-hmm. Why I don't know, <laughs> but I did. And I remember talking to this man who told me that his name was Rommel and he had escaped from the British forces. Oh my God! <laughs> Well, obviously, he belonged somewhere where they had padded cells, but it was a fascinating conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So, you you know, you you just, uh, yep, you just talk to people. At at one point, I uh, started talking to a guy who happened to be in the same elevator as I in Fort Lauderdale when I go down from my office for lunch. We used to get 25-cent hamburgers at Walgreens. I don't even like to remember that part. And and he was a real flirt. And, uh-huh. and we sort of had this funny thing going. And one day there was a woman in the, in the elevator I'd never seen before. And I sort of made some comment to this guy. And he rolled his eyes and she opened her purse and pulled out a chrome snub-nosed 38 and pointed it between my eyes and said, if you ever make a pass at my husband, I'll blow your blanket head off. And then she invited me to dinner. And we became really good friends. Oh, wow. And then one day he called and he said, uh, he said, uh, this has nothing to do with Patricia, but there's somebody I want you to meet. I'm taking you to lunch. So we went across the street to the Broward Hotel and there was this guy named Jim Minnick and he was head of vice for Miami, Dade County. And he said they were trying to set up uh, an observation situation in Broward County because they had put together a Miami-Dade vice squad and they needed somebody who was not known to do this. And so I became a member of the Miami-Dade vice squad (laughs) and my job was to identify uh, call girls in the upscale bars. Oh my my gosh. So I uh, sort of went to the upscale bars and became friends with the bartenders and I'd pay them to make lists of who was coming in because the mob owned the biggest uh, uh, the biggest setup stable 
oh, right. of Call Girls. Uh-huh. It was run by a woman named Robbie Robinson, I remember. And so they'd keep track of that for me. And so I was feeding all this information to Mr. Minnick and thought, oh, isn't this exciting? <laughs> and then they asked me if I wanted to carry a gun. Well, I grew up with guns. My dad shot skeet out at Hayden and he went hunting in the fall and guns were either to hit clay pigeons or kill people things kill yeah. animals I said no thank you mm-hmm. so I had a, an investigator license but not a detective license if you're a detective you have to carry a gun mm-hmm. oh. and I said I'm not willing to kill somebody mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and if you carry a gun in those situations you're really setting yourself up because be you ready. show a gun you're going to get shot right so I was doing all of this stuff and one of the things I had to do was to go to this party where Robbie Robinson's girls were and see who was there well the host of this thing was a tall handsome guy with white hair and blue eyes sort of like an old Paul Newman Uh he was really cool and uh at one point, I was making notes in my little book and slipping it in my pocket, and I went into the kitchen, and there was a guy standing there, and, and I was talking, you know, who are you, what do you do, blah, blah, you know how you do it at a party, and right. he said that he was, he uh, sold sports equipment, and I said, really, for whom? I thought he'd say something like Wilson or something. He said, well, for Montgomery Wards. Well, ironically, when I was 10, my dad gave me 10 shares of Montgomery Ward, which we used to call Monkey Ward. Monkey Ward, <laughs> And right. so I would learn to read a profit and loss statement and read an annual report and everything. And for some reason, I knew that Montgomery Ward did not have any stores in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> and I said to him, well, how interesting, since Montgomery Ward doesn't have any flo- stores in Florida. He said, how did you know that? <laughs> and I just said, so what do you really do? <laughs> and he was FBI. And he was there doing the same thing I was doing. But it turned out that he had played football at Florida State with Mr. Blue Eyes. Mm. And they were friends. Uh And Mr. Blue Eyes didn't know what he did. Mm. Nor did any... Nobody knew what anybody did at that party. Right. Except for a lot of of, uh, professional football coaches. (laughs) And so... Mr. Blue Eyes asked me to go out to dinner, so I went out to dinner with him, and it was a lot of fun, and he he knew a lot about music and theater and all that, and it was very romantic. And then one night, he invited me to this restaurant in Miami called Santino's. It was a very nice Italian restaurant, and he paid the violinist to come over and play and give me a rose and all that. Mm-hmm. And he was just at the point of asking me to marry him when in comes Meyer Lansky, who is the head of the uh, mob mm-hmm. on the East Coast. And he was with a lot of girls who worked for Robbie Robinson. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Wonderful Blue Eyes, he had his, his uh, I can't remember, I haven't watched Godfather for a long time, the guy who who works with him, uh, anyway, he sat next to him. More than a bodyguard, sort of his administrator. His capo. Uh huh. Yeah. So, Mr. Blue Eyes goes over and kisses the capo's ring. And I thought, I got to get out of here. And then they invited us to join their table. And I had met Marilansky before, you're going to love this, when I was a hostess at a High Life Ronton. And <laughs> he used to come in and gamble. And because I could speak French, they, they made me the hostess for the, the uh, special seating place. And uh-huh. so I got to meet Marilansky, and he was very charming because I was a nobody. So there I am at the table, and I thought, oh, God, he's going to recognize me, and the girls are going to recognize me. And we've got to get out of here. And all of a sudden... They all said, let's go to Big Daddy's, which was a bar liquor store that the mob owned. Mm -hmm. So we go to Big Daddy's, and I'm standing with my back against the wall by an exit, ready to run. And some poor schlump comes up and asks if he can buy me a drink. And before I can say anything, two goons pick him up and take him outside. And the capo came over and said, are you all right? And I said, no, I'd like to go home. I thought he'd call a cab, but he had Mr. Blue Eyes drive me home. Oh, wow. And that's when I remembered 
Sister St. Dennis teaching me the act of contrition in the second grade <laughs> because he went home through the, the Tamiami Trail, which is where you dump bodies because it's full of alligators and oh nobody ever God. finds anybody. <laughs> oh, jeez. So I'm trying to be very calm, and we get to my apartment, which is a duplex on the beach, mm-hmm. and he pulls up, and, and I remember as if it were yesterday, saying very calmly, I'm going to reach into my purse and get my keys, and then I'm going to reach up and open the door, and then I'm going to turn and get out and then shut the door slowly, and then I'm going to walk to my door and take my key and unlock the door, and then I'm going to go inside. And I thought all the way in I was going to get a bullet in the back. Mm. I know that sounds dramatic, but I was sure that this was the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I walk in and I, I immediately go to the common wall, <laughs> put my back <laughs> against the wall, and I'm wondering whether I should laugh, cry, or scream yeah. when all of a sudden he bursts in my door, which is a French door, glass everywhere, and he's on his knees apologizing, and I said, just go away, I need to be by myself. Right. So he got up and left, and I grabbed a beach bag and threw my toothbrush and some underwear in it. <laughs> and I waited until I could see his car was gone, and I went out to my car, and I pushed it up the street and into an alley and three blocks with no lights, no engine, nothing, and then drove three towns north and registered in a Holiday Inn as my mother. Oh, wow. And then I called the FBI, and who should answer the phone? Because Mr. Wonderful told me he was in the FBI, which is a federal offense. Mm. And to make a long story short, short, it turned out that he turned out to be, he his job was that he was a stockbroker, but he was a hitman for Lansky. <gasps> and I was so lucky to get out of that. Mm. And then my parents came to visit the following January. And my dad said he wanted to go to the Super Bowl, which was in Miami that year. And another story we won't share is I'd gotten to be friends with Joe Namath. And so <laughs> they, the Jets were playing the uh, Oakland Raiders. Mm-hmm. I did not know Kenny Stabler. And, uh, <laughs> and I knew that the mob owned the Dolphins. Mm-hmm. So I called Mr. Wonderful and asked if he could get two tickets for my dad to go to the game so he comes over and he he and my dad are an instant friends oh gee and the tickets were in the royal box on the 50 yard line oh boy that was the year the woman walked out to the 50 yard line in her mink coat and dropped it and she wasn't wearing anything oh, else geez. anyway <laughs> <laughs> wow it was, it was you need to write these stories I down know. marlo it was really wow really bizarre and uh I never saw Mr. Wonderful again, thank you. Yeah. And uh, but my dad did. Oh. And when my parents got divorced, my dad sent him all of his securities, and Mr. Wonderful put them in some uh, numbered place in the Bahamas that nobody has ever found because Mr. Wonderful disappeared. He was probably oh left oh, somewhere wow. on the Miami yeah, right. trail somewhere. Ruh-roh. Oh man. So, oh boy. Wow, I don't so bye bye securities. <laughs> but that's what happens when you just, yeah, you know, you just walk into things and yeah. you just also need to know when to walk out. Yeah, exactly. Wow, right. Crazy. So I've had a wonderful life. You I said, have. I said wow. to my husband the other night, you know, if I dropped dead in the next second, I'd have no regrets. But I still have so much more to do, so I hope it doesn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Well, me too. Cause yeah. What a story. I really wanted you to come back. Because those were good <laughs> well, stories. Oh, my I gosh. Have, uh, life stories. I've started writing a, uh, a novel about based on the Florida experience. Oh, cool. That'd be good. I and, can't uh, wait to read that one. Um yeah. Well, some of it will be true. Okay. Well, that's okay. I know. You know, that's, be... that's the fun part of writing and is that that you're God. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you Christians out there. <laughs> uh, but you get to be God because yeah, you are your story. in control of the life and death and behavior of all of your characters. Right? Yeah. And the strangest thing happens, I don't know if any of you have written fiction, but all of a sudden your characters rise up and they talk back to you and they do things you don't want them to do mm-hmm. or they refuse to do things you want them to do. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds insane, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, I've been writing for a long time, and uh, 
I, I have a book out. My agent has a book out in New York to mm -hmm. editors hoping somebody will salute. And it took me a long time to write that book because those characters didn't always say what I wanted them to say. Mm -hmm. And I had to keep going back and editing and rewriting. And now I've written a book uh, called Fishbelly White. It's uh, based on the when the Aryan nations were here and mm -hmm. the... Oh. the uh, uh, they had really amazing uh, sets of uh, counterfeit plates. Mm, really? Yeah, that's how they financed all their violence. Mm, they printed wow. them here. And so I had this great scene where my my protagonist um, goes, it's, this is over in Casco Bay in the Magnuson House because that was originally my grandparents' homestead. Mm -hmm. So I used it as a base. That's where the... They're called the Silent Army, the guy who is in charge. He lived there. Mm -hmm. So my protagonist goes over there knowing that n nobody's there. And she goes down to this uh, pump house on the beach, which is over there. And she breaks in. All kinds of things happen. And she finds the plates in an old orange crate. So she's, she walks out on the sand. She's part of the story she's already lost her flip-flops her glasses are broken she walks across the sand and up the steps and she's walking and and I had this wonderful description about how all those if you've ever carried an orange crate they're really soft wood she was getting all these splinters on the inside of her arm uh-huh and I was so excited about it about how real this was so I thought well I better make sure that's how it works so I called the Treasury Department in San Francisco in the federal building and this is what's so cool about being a writer I said, I'm a writer, and I'm just writing this scene, and my protagonist has just stolen some counterfeit plates, and sh she has them in this crate, orange crate, and she's carrying them. And she says, oh, no, he said, counterfeit plates are now on Mylar. Oh. They would be in a manila folder, in, probably in somebody's attache case. So forget that scene. So we go back. And <laughs> <laughs> rewrite, rewrite. You know, and she finds, and she finds the attache case, and she finds them. And she walks up, and she gets to her car, and she tosses them in the front seat, and she has a big sigh, and then she goes start the car, and she can't find her car keys, and then the bad guy reaches in for the back seat, and he said, "Is this what you're looking oh, for?" Oh, <laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs> That's so it's, awesome. <laughs> so it's really fun. Um, That's great. You know, and the sheriff is the, it, I, the description is the guy I, I dated when I was a senior in high school because he was tall and lanky and, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's just really fun. And I do use Friends as foundation and, yeah. and in some of the things, and in fact, that piece, uh, almost all of the secondary characters are real people who've given me permission to use their names. Oh, cool. That's fun. Well, Maybe exciting. you'll find a way to work Allie and Callie. It's all, it's all <laughs> not, no. My podcasters. Not in this the... one. No, no. Next book. Not, Next in book. This, not in this one. But when I was researching it, I, I had a chance to uh, interview the deputy who was in charge of following the, the area nations in the early 70s. And I went out to his house and spent a lot of time with him and he gave me copies of the videos that they had done of the inside of the Aryan Nations uh, headquarters yeah. mm. and uh, as well as the outside so I used all of that oh cool it was, re wow. it was really fun it was yeah well we'll look forward wow. to that book yeah for sure Good well history. in fact did I mention this before that I, I got an editor who's working on it with me and she she said you know normally I don't do this but she said I'm fascinated by this because I grew up in Wallace this is yes a, you this, did this is a woman that, in New yeah. York so yeah that's pretty it's a small world I know it's it's, it's another weird. one of those little like, little connections that you continue to make well we're we're moving to California and uh, it's a whole new uh, adventure. Mm -hmm. um, Next chapter in your book. Well, my husband's life. 91 and I'm 81. And uh, we're going to see what life brings. That's yeah. right. Well, we're well, so glad that you came here today. I know. For Thank part you for two the invitation. Of Marlo. I've told a lot of people they should listen to last week. And, and I've gotten really fun responses. <laughs> 
That's from good. people. Good. That's good. good. Well, they'll enjoy this one too. Yeah. I want to end it just on um, just a quick story or or something about a highlight for you in this community. Oh, it had to be the Fourth of July parade. Ooh. Oh. Because when you were the Grand Marshal. I have to, I'll tell you a really funny story about that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Years ago, my father was a serial monogamist. And he had, <laughs> one of his conquests was a real estate agent in St. Mary's. And so he bought some property in St. Mary's. Of course, he had to go check it out all the time. Right. Well, it was three lots on the St. Joe River that were underwater most of the time. <laughs> so when my dad died and the the estate was divided, my mother gave my brother and I those three lots. And, of course, I didn't care about them at all, but he used to go up there with his fifth wife and, <laughs> and camp a lot. Oh, wow. And at one point, I got a call from a real estate agent up there who said, uh, your brother has listed this property. Uh, will you come up and sign the uh, papers? And I said, no. You know, I'm not interested in selling it. Mm-hmm. And so cut to about five months ago, we get a call from a real estate agent in St. Mary says, I have somebody who seriously wants to buy those lots. Mm-hmm. And they're the only people who are ever going to want to buy them because they own the next lot. Mm. And uh, so we, you know, talked around and we came up with a price we were all happy with. And so cut to the chase. It's time to write the check, right? Mm-hmm. Turns out my brother's wife has never filed probate, so there's no record of his death. Oh, oh no. Great. And then, if that weren't bad enough, the name on the the deed is my given name, Marlene mm. Faulkner. And I have to prove I'm Marlene Faulkner. Oh, yeah. So I get my... My social security card, which I got in 1951, because all the kids in the Fort Grounds, we were all going to go out to Dalton Gardens and pick raspberries, <laughs> but we had to have a social security card. Right. So we all got a social security card, and it says on it, Marlene Finney. And then when I got married, I got changed my name. So it says Marlene Faulkner. But there's nothing that says Marlo Faulkner. Mm. Absolutely nothing. And the title company will not clear the deed until I can prove who I am. That you're Marlo. Oh, my. Oh so my it turns goodness. out, you know, I was adopted. <laughs> I've never had a birth copy of my birth certificate. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah. our wedding album disappeared one day, one year, mm-hmm. and it had the marriage license in it. Oh, boy. And so they, told, they, they called and they said, unless you can prove who you are, who you are with the name that is on the deed, we cannot process the sale. Right. Boy. So, I used the picture that the Coeur d'Alene Press had on the front page for <laughs> the, pre- the Grand the Marshal, Grand Marshal <laughs> because it said Marlene Finney Faulkner, Marlo Finney Faulkner. Oh, there you go. And they, and they took, took, they they took, took it. it. Oh, I love that. <laughs> is that hilarious? But you know, excellent. The the parade. Uh, I've had a lot of people say, you know, I don't go to the parade anymore. I just went down there to yell hey to you and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But the thing that was so amazing about that parade, first of all, I've never seen that many people in Coeur d'Alene. They were five and six deep, deep. Yeah, from Fifteenth Street on. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I had been with the, I had gone, played drums with the Perfectionauts at one time. Mm-hmm. And so I'd seen that, but it was never, it was always, you know, mm-hmm. maybe two, Here two and there. rows or yeah. something. Yeah. There, there were thousands of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not implying because I was in it, really. <laughs> but there were thousands of people. And what was so overwhelming to me, not just the people I knew who were, yelling and you know hitting cowbells and stuff so Mm -hmm, i could see them it was the people i didn't know who they were i'd never seen them before who said thank you for what you do thank you for all the things you've done i mean it really brought me to the edge of tears yeah that's great and then when we came down uh just past 11th uh you're all going to think i'm really nuts 
I looked down, and there I was, standing in the street, mm. age seven. Oh, you had a man. Sherman School. There was a little girl. Her hair was parted in the middle. She had long braids uh. over her shoulder. She was wearing a dress very similar to one I had that was a favorite. I have a picture of me wearing. Mm. And she was standing there, holding her hands in front of her and looking up at me. And I almost had the driver stop the car so I could get out and take a picture of her. <laughs> it was Sweet. absolutely heart-stopping because it was me. Yeah. I mean, she literally looked like my first grade picture. Wow. It's like and the journey continues. It right? was it was That's amazing. Sweet. But it was so satisfying just to be there, except for the bursitis I still have in my <laughs> right shoulder from waving from the it's way, waving for two miles. It's hard. But um, <laughs> it was it was just a perfect experience. That's great. And the the only downer was that we were in a restaurant the week before and when we left there were some people at the bar we knew and said hello and there was this guy I didn't know and he said so you're going to be the grand marshal of the parade are you and I said yes I am and he said well I would never do that he said with open carry what do you think your chances of ending up at the the bottom of the parade alive right and I had nightmares that somebody some idiot yeah, would do something like that. And right. then I got so carried away with how wonderful the people were, I forgot all about it. Oh, good. that's good. So the good outweighs the bad the, it, on right. that it day. It was really sure. a, just, you know, uh, Mark and I were, were named, uh, we won the Mayor's Award one year. You did, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, was a, that was certainly a highlight. Mm-hmm. And seeing the opera go, that was a yeah. highlight. Graduated from high school. <laughs> was a highlight. Right. I've had a lot of highlights, but the that was the perfect going away present. I, I think so that. too. It That's, was just I wonderful. I am so way. grateful that whoever made that decision did it because it's uh, it was a real high for me. Nice cherry on the top. Well, Marlo, thank you for all you've done. Yes. We would not be here doing without this you. podcast. I was about you. to say that. Yeah. <laughs> If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be That's here. Right. Yeah, no. Oh, somebody would have done it. Oh, well, I don't Maybe, know about that. But we're so it. glad that you did. because well, yeah, this, I, I am too. I'm a, really proud of what you all have done. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's the people that started it, that pounded the pavement and made it happen. And you've made so many great things happen in this town. Well, you, oh, I get oh, it. She's gonna you know cry. me. I how I do that. I am a baby. <laughs> I'm just, I just think there. we need more people like you that really fight the right. fight and get, get I, things I done. If anybody is listening who has moved here for whatever reason, find something in the community. Get involved. And get involved. Yeah. Whether it's the the new Humane Society Center or yeah. it's the Human Rights Center or it's the Republican Party or the Democrats or your church or whatever it is, if it's going to help bring the community together and, and yeah. make this community better, do it. Yeah. Don't just sit around and let somebody else do it. This is not Germany in 1930. Right. This, is a yes. pretty, this is a pretty great place. It is a pretty great so place. So let's make it even better. That's right. Well, we're going to miss you. Yeah. Oh, For somebody sure. else so will pop up. Maybe we'll come. Maybe we'll go to California. Yeah, maybe we'll go to California. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. I love it. Okay. Awesome. Oh, well, thank you again for yes. being here. Well, thanks yes. for having me. Yes, thank you, you so much. Love your stories. Yes, they're the best. Oh, my gosh. So I'm Allie. And I'm Callie. And whatever you do today, well, make sure it's creative. And make a difference. The Allie and Callie Artcast is a program of the Coeur d'Alene Arts and Culture Alliance and is sponsored by NIA. North Idaho Alliance, a woman-based leadership organization designed to inspire, uplift, and impact your community and lives. And Tubbs Coffee Roasters, globally sourced, locally roasted coffee.